0: Welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Uh, Today, we are here for Rick Moody and the Four Fingers of Death. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Uh, He's written uh, the books Garden State, The Ice Storm, Purple America, and The Diviners, uh, The Ring of Brightest Angels Around Heaven, and Demonology. He's won many awards. He lives in Brooklyn, but guess what? We have him here tonight in Las Feliz. Please welcome Rick Moody. Hi, you guys. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to read two short excerpts from this book, which, in truth, is impossible to excerpt. But I've done my best here. Um, and hopefully they're explain-proof excerpts. Uh, so, there's a kind of a frame story in the book, most of which is narrated by it a failed writer in the Sonoran Desert uh, whose name I won in an auction. He's called Montez Crandall and uh, he goes on at some length about how he came to write this book and this passage has to do with that. People often ask me where I get my ideas or on one occasion back in 2024 I was asked This was at a reading in an old-fashioned used media outlet right here in town, the store called Arachnids Incorporated. The audience consisted of five intrepid and stalwart folks, four out of the five, no doubt intent on surfing aimlessly at consoles. Or perhaps they intended to leave the store when instead they were herded into a cluster of uncomfortable petrochemical multi-use furniture modules by Noel Stroop, the hard-drinking owner-operator of the shop in question. I'd been pestering Noel about a reading for some time, months, despite the fact that Arachnids was not celebrated for its calendar of arts-related programming. To be honest, the reason for this pestering had most to do with my wife, who'd spend her remaining time on Earth counseling me on just how to boost my product. Ask Noel, my wife said, her eyes full of implacable purpose. We used to see Noel at the flea market which by now took up more than a dozen city blocks. There were more flea markets than licensed tax-paying emporia in Rio Blanco. I had a booth there where on weekends I hawked old baseball cards and sports memorabilia. This Therefore is my business. It was here at the flea market, according to my wife's plans, that I screwed up my non existent courage one Sunday and said to Noel, who was busy selling software modules, something called a compact disc and ebook files. Hey Noel, what does a guy like me, a literary innovator, have to do in this town to get some respect? Perhaps you're wondering what I have done to merit such a high opinion of my legacy. What is the nature of the Montese Crandall literary innovation? I'm going to take the remainder of these notes to fully explicate my response to this question. Let me then throw down the gauntlet and remark that I, Montese Crandall, MFA, write very short very condensed literary pieces. And by short, I mean very, very short. Shorter than you've probably read in your reading life. More than one word, usually, because one word is too easy. (laughs) But quite a bit more modest than five score. The 350 pages of the novel, according to the argument, I am wont to advance, are tedious elaboration. As I understand it, death, war, and adultery are the major novelistic themes, and these were all dispensed with well before Christ got nailed to his block of wood. The 19th, the 19th century novel, you opine, The 19th century novel does have it all. Attic dwelling inheritance, uncanny coincidences, advantageous marriages to strong silent landowners, orphans, revolutions, wailing. (laughs) You can't go wrong with the 19th century novel, but much that's been written since amounts to imitation, barely warmed over by writers with strange grammatical inclinations. Lovelorn women of Canada. <laughs> Incest on the southern plantation. Drug using editorial assistants. We've heard it all before. <laughs> Yours truly Montese Crandall li- living out his Pacific middle age in a college town next door over to nowhere at all is unwilling to add more roughage to this diet. One thing the late 20th century was good at besides mass marketing, paring away, omitting needless words, alluding without overstating, dust bunny under radiator, cockroach on window blind, Scotch bottles, heartbreak in the food court, (laughs) impotence, subdivisions, melanoma, muffler problems. Upon the advent of the digital age, as you know, writers who went on and on and on just didn't last. You couldn't read all that nonsense on a screen. Fragmentation became the one true way. Additionally, this strategic reduction blurred the line between poetry and prose, which is where I, Montee's Crandall, come into the story. I, Montee's Crandall, rely heavily on such strategies as alliteration, condensation, the strange ghostly echo of metrical feet, iams and dactyls, spondees and amphibrachs. For example, here's a pair of amphibrax, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, that might very well summarize my entire output. Romantic objective. (laughs) The phrase does have a fine euphony. My first groundbreaking and innovative one-sentence story occurred in the following way. I'd been working on a 45-page erotic novella, (laughs) that was loosely based on my boundless physical desire for my wife, Tara Schott. Crandall. The sequence in which I performed a certain advanced delight upon her delicately canted pelvis ran well over 20 pages and her mews and snorts of transport as described in the text would pierce the waxy consciousnesses of neighbors up and down the block. Her cries of delight as described therein were likened to the coyote howling on the mesa the kettle shrilling on the stovetop, sopranos and local opera companies would hang their heads for they knew that when Tara shot Crandall climaxed, they were out of a job. (laughs) I am afraid I cut the entire passage, the erotic part. And not only that, then I cut the opening and the ending. I cut a lot of the middle. I cut the part where we were post-coitally sharing a glass of Van Ordinaire. Next, I cut the astoundingly tender moment in the story where, in snappy dialogue, Tara and I revisited our assignations past the time in the back of a minivan the time in the woods when we got Poison Ivy, the time in the press box at the basketball game. For a while, a single scene remained in which the Tara character sent me out after lovemaking for eggs. Eggs, so beautiful, so fecund, likely to balance on their oblong points during the equinoxes. Symbols of fertility, available in multiple sizes including jumbo. I couldn't let go of this scene for a while, you know how this is, and yet after three months of wrestling with that story, I cut the entire tangle of misbegotten sentences. The whole sprawling mess, or almost all of it, leaving none at last but the following. Go get some eggs, you dwarf. <laughs> okay, so that's the beginning part. Much later on, there's a love story between two very improbable lovers. I think it's going to be obvious. It sort of shifts back and forth in point of view here, starting with the woman. It was morning when Noelle Stern arrived at the laboratory, fresh from a night of heavy peyote ingestion at the Omnium Gatherum. She was the first to the office. Dr. Koo, as always, was nowhere to be found. Larry hadn't come in yet. Noelle's headache from the peyote was deep and migrainous, and she had the sensation that she often seemed to have afterward, that life despite its shabbiness when compared to the pyrotechnical hallucinations of a drug, was somehow rewarding, tender, sad, and welcome. The lines of people at the filling filling station trying to cash in on the big lottery drawing that day, sad. The people filling up large drums of water and putting these into their motorless wagons at the government-sponsored rationing stations, very sad. Still, Noelle was feeling upbeat and positive in that she still had a job, and her job on this day was to observe Morton and to interact with Morton a little bit to see if there was a way that he'd begun to respond to the injections that she'd given him earlier. Given that she'd just witnessed cactus in psychedelic hues, arguing about whether the soul was vegetable or mineral, spending a morning watching a chimpanzee operate a computer joystick didn't seem like the worst thing. The question of my own enlightenment, Morton meanwhile considered, is more important to me than the liberation of my species, which I may not be able to accomplish from this squalid cell. After all, Wilde was not able to achieve complete liberation of his fellow homosexuals from reading jail, nor was the Marquis de Sade effective from the Bastille. Gramsci, Mandela, Many great thinkers have spent the kind of time I'm spending now, and they have learned to be patient about history while they pursued a course of individual betterment. I must take comfort from these examples. Therefore, there are a number of questions I would like to ask. The first question I would like to ask is, how is it that I am composing these lines, admittedly, in my head? Since I know well that in prior years I felt myself to be just as oppressed as any other chimpanzee and just as uninterested in the political superstructure around me as any other chimp. Why is it today that I am a thinking and feeling and rationally reflexive primate who could easily best many a human in a logical puzzle? I will put aside the supernatural. Which doesn't really exist in any event as an explanation, and instead I will tender two other arguments. The first of these concerns mutation. Perhaps it is possible that evolution at last has thrown a curveball in the direction of the evolutionary dominance of Homo sapiens sapiens. Perhaps evolution has finally anointed another mammal another primate who is easily as reflexive and rationally enthusiastic as the human animal, namely myself. Perhaps the time has come and all I need to do is ensure that I am able to pass along my own DNA to succeeding generations of chimpanzees. If this is the case, then it's absolutely imperative that I sire as many children in captivity as I am able. This would be the first argument, the argument from evolution, which might explain my enlightenment. I have a very substantial doubt about this argument, however, and it concerns the suddenness of onset. I am now able to know my own age and to know that there were many years prior to this, my 18th, in which I was unable to learn much about myself. In prior years, I couldn't read English. I also now have a modicum of French. I couldn't follow complex news stories about economics and international relations. I couldn't banter about sports. By suddenly finding myself capable along these lines, I have to accept that either adolescence is very, very primitive as far as intellectual capacity goes, or I have to conclude that some outside agency caused my enlightenment. You probably know as well as I that there's only one legitimate conclusion, and that conclusion is that my intellectual awareness has been arrived at through experimental regimen. True, the vast majority of experiments performed upon my brethren are cruel, degrading, and inhumane. And yet perhaps it is possible on occasion for an experiment to produce genuine results. Improvement in the lot of the chimpanzee. Perhaps I'm the beneficiary. If so, I too now believe that the future of life on earth involves the interfacing of organic life with technological innovation. It's simply ignorant to believe that all life has to be fashioned from organic compounds or that anything that is conceived of in the brain is somehow less natural simply because it's not fashioned from the elderflower or lingonberry. Morton Noel said upon slowly and carefully entering his cage, did you have a good night? Her usual greeting, she'd learned from the primatologists that the highest compliment afforded by a chimpanzee upon greeting was a casual glance followed by non-recognition of any sort. Still, she believed the music of her voice was welcome and she applied it warmly, fervently so that it was something reliable, continuous, soothing. She also believed in repetition, in habit, and so she tried to engage with Morton in nearly the same ways each morning. The chimp offered no response, but as she carried him the plate of orange slices she'd brought from this particular day, she did notice that he went immediately to grab the fruits and then and what was clearly a reversal. He instead made the decision to leave the plate where it was, at least for the time being. Anything you particularly want this morning? I suppose I could give you more of the paints, but I think you've used up most of the paints for now until we get more, unless you're interested in chartreuse. We loaded some new alphabetical software on the computer and you could work with that for a while. There's also a copy of a personality index called the Meyerson Goldberg Multiple Choice Index. You could fill that out. We could see if you have any sociopathic qualities. <laughs> Dr. Ku wants you to take the test at some point, but not a lot of pressure there. Or I could just read to you a little bit from this book here I have about medieval diseases. Any of these things of interest? Morton looked at Noel looked down at his chimpanzee hands, as if to express chagrin at the shape of them, and then, unless she was mistaken, he looked right at her and sighed. How to describe the sigh? Some sighs have centuries of history in them, and Noelle was sure that Morton's sigh was one of these, and she believed it had to do with his hands. She realized that it was a not infrequent side effect of hallucinogens that regular life begins to be abraded by the bizarre certainties of the drug theater. Therefore, she believed that Morton was sighing in an expressive way because she had taken powerful hallucinogenic drugs the night before and maybe Morton was leaning down and looking at her shoe and was somehow attempting to tie her shoe for her, but maybe all of this had nothing to do with the hallucinogens or anything else. Maybe it was just part part of life in the animal research laboratory. The big black fingers of the chimpanzee, imperfectly calibrated to the fine motor requirements of shoe tying, pursued the intricacies of the butterfly knot, the loops and the inside and outside of negative space in a way that surely must have had something to do with the famous typing monkeys, because Morton did exceedingly well with the butterfly knot at first, if if slowly. While she still bent forward at the waist like some sufferer of osteoporosis waited, the ape crouched at her sneakered foot and she could smell his breath. Their breaths, their inhalations met and commingled as the ape labored with her shoes. Their breaths were one. At last, however, Morton let go of the butterfly knot that he was struggling so badly to keep in his hand, sighed additionally, and he lumbered over to one wall of the cage where there was a nasty, oily stain, probably a fecal smear from some primate who antedated Morton. He stood there as if expectant, as if beckoning to her. Giving up on the laces so soon? Do you want to clean the wall? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Because you know, if you want to eliminate some of my maintenance responsibilities, I'd be only too happy. She didn't wait for an answer because all conversation with Morton or virtually all conversation was rhetorical. Instead, Noelle slipped out of the cage, went down the empty hall to the supply closet and fetched the mop, the bucket and some sponges. When I think back on the period before and the period now, Morton thought there's only one constant that connects these two periods. Only one person was there before. This I know indisputably and is here now. Her name, so as not to be rude about the whole business, is Noel, which I think is a very beautiful name, a name that has a lot in common with the wintertime celebration of lights known as Christmas. That I remember her from before is perhaps part of why I can't seem to overcome my surging ardor with respect to Noel. Perhaps I'm suffering from what I believe is called in human circles, a crush. Of course, we have these in the chimpanzee world too, but they are temporary and also potentially very dangerous. Should you unwisely elect to fall in love with a female who's already spoken for by one of the high-ranking chimpanzees of the group, you are liable to receive a serious, I believe the expression is known as, smackdown. Because I'm the only chimpanzee in the laboratory right now, there's no danger of my crush resulting in bodily harm of any kind. Perhaps for this reason, my feelings about Noel, the ones that date to the earlier period in which she took care of a more adolescent Morton, have become more acute now that I possess the language with which to elaborate upon their specifics. For example, there is what I refer to as night cherishing. Night when I'm alone in the cell and there are few visits, except perhaps from the learning disabled janitor who happens by, this is the worst time because there's very little stimulus. And yet it's also the time in which I'm left alone with my thoughts and I am therefore at liberty to think about the garments that Noel may have been wearing this day. I try to avoid thinking about her in an unchaste way but in the midst of night cherishing. I recall the little gestures that she's made or displayed. I wouldn't refer to them as mating gestures at all. On the contrary, in a way it's exactly the unrequited nature of my feelings about Noelle that motivate me during the night cherishing. She cocks her head in a certain fashion when I feel sure she's being ironic. Only yesterday she asked me whether I was tired of having lunch with her or whether we should invite others to our daily lunch gatherings. And I I understood her question to be facetious. And yet the adorable way that she cocked her head while she was saying it, it was just very sweet. Noel asked if I would prefer to have other lunch companions, and this remark occasioned the cocking of the head and the cocking of the head occasioned later on my night cherishing. There might also be a certain garment that she's wearing. For example, today she's wearing these lightweight shoes that are called sneakers, and they are of such fanciful colors, and it's just. Very hard for me not to think back on these shoes and to think of them as something that I'm just very, very glad to have in my life. (laughs) Noelle loved the weaving motion of the mop and bucket and she weaved and careened down the ill-lit hospital corridor and into the primate research center with her drunken bucket full of soapy water. A couple of sponges lay in the bottom of the bucket and these she fished out into the dingy, joyless cage where all her efforts to decorate the space had come to naught. She wheeled the bucket, bringing it to a sloshing halt in front of the animal. It's your first chance to have a low paying and difficult job of the kind that any unskilled worker in this country might have. I feel like I really shouldn't initiate you into this because if you're able to learn how to be a wage slave, as opposed to a victim of science, Then you'll be treated unfairly twice over. But it seemed like you were asking for the bucket, so I brought it. The response was almost instantaneous. In the past, she'd seen chimps, especially orangutans, express an interest in cleaning solutions when, practically speaking, the only real interest they had was in splashing the products onto the human standing nearest. Or perhaps they were inhaling some of the solution for the purpose of derangement. In this case, Morton's yen for the cleaning supplies seemed seemed strangely to be about cleaning. He successfully dragged the bucket over toward the wall, he applied water to a sponge, he began massaging the oily brown stains on the wall. It was true, Noel observed, that he did take special interest in squeezing the water out of the sponge and back into the bucket and repeating the dipping and squeezing, as if testing the liquid properties of the deluge that resulted. But most indisputable was the interest of the chimp in the actual scouring of the wall and the conclusion had to be that this particular chimp, unlike many others she had seen, preferred a tidy and presentable living space. From the office, she sent a message to Coos' old-fashioned voicemail box to offer a few comments, not- noting that Morton seemed even more tidy than he, than he had seen, seemed in the last few days. Was it possible? Was she imagining all of this? And was it really true that she'd had a conversation with a Palo Verde tree last night and that in the conversation with the tree, she had asked it, well aware that there was a risibility to the whole exchange, whether it was possible to have relationships across species lines. Morton, did you clean that off for me? That's very kind of you because Larry, you know... He usually leaves the cleaning for me. He thinks my being a woman somehow makes me better at cleaning stuff. Listen, I know that the bonobos are much more about the matrilineal matriarchal thing than the chimps, but I'm going to give you some insight here into the situation with humans, and maybe this will help you as you go forward in your dealings with us." Okay, Morton. The situation is that the male of the species is just always looking for ways to dominate the woman. That's just my opinion. Maybe you should just consider it my opinion, but that's how it is. It's true that in many cases, the male of the species is physically larger. Look at me, I'm not a big girl. But even when the women are big, I guarantee you that there's a guy who thinks that he's got something over those Valkyrie maidens. He can order them around and under the cover of night, He expects them to wash the stains from his Y-front beefs. That's why I'm here all these hours, all these days, and when there's shit all over the floor, it's me who cleans up the shit. And that's why I really appreciate your cleaning off that smear. There was an expectancy in his expression again, or else she was really starting to go crazy and ought not to have come into work, and it was the expectancy that made her feel like she wanted to unburden herself even further. Three-legged stool in the cage on which she sat, squeaked, and Morton flinched for a moment. It wasn't easy to do it, what she did next. And she sort of wondered whether, in doing it, she was just cleaning out the last bit of peyote in her system. She did it anyway. Morton, would it be all right if I told you something that I'm going through right now? I know you're not really going to have an opinion on this stuff. But there's something going on at the Omnium Gatherum, which, you know, is the spiritual community I'm involved with. And I just have a bad feeling about it. And I haven't really told anyone. You know, obviously, here at work, nobody believes in this kind of thing. They all think it's pretty embarrassing. I just feel like I can talk to you about these parts of my life without feeling, you know, judged. Is it all right if I ask you a question? She stared at him. She gazed upon him. He had the full extent of her gaze as though she were looking into the window, of his soul now, and it made her tremble in a way that she hadn't experienced with him before. It was like the knowledge of her own nakedness, this trembling. It was like phased withdrawal. It was like avian flu, the new mutated version. It was like something interpersonal. She could see him mulling it over. She knew he was even as she believed it was peyote, or the after-burning of it. Morton was chewing oddly, as though he'd gotten hold of Larry's nicotine gum, and it seemed almost hilarious. But she resisted the desire to laugh at this gum-chewing repetition of Morton's. Laughter was species-centric behavior. It was narcissistic, unless it was the laughter of recognition, of compassion, of likeness. And without laughing, she realized that Morton was trying to say something to her and the fact that he had no real idea how to use his vocal cords was a genuine impediment. It was as though a stroke victim or a coma sufferer had clawed his way back from the lower depths. He chewed and he chewed and then as though he were somewhat informed on the physiognomic reasons that he would never be able to talk. He put his lips together, and with a momentousness that would transport Noelle leagues beyond where she was when she parked her car out in front of the hospital that morning, Morton, the chimpanzee, whispered, you know, I'm so fond of you. (laughs) Thanks. I was asked to take questions. Any questions? I think we should just skip over the anxious part where no one wants to be the first questioner. So whoever raises their hand, I will declare the second questioner. <laughs> <laughs> um, the verbiage that, and the, the language that the Omnium, was it? Gatherum. Was it Gatherum uses. It, it was hilarious, it was fun. What do you get, I don't want to ask for a good idea, but do you hear stuff like that and remember it when people use those kinds of phrases? Or you just I did go to Burning Man for research. <laughs> I lasted one night. But they didn't there wasn't a lot of verbiage at Burning Man. <laughs> there was a lot of other stuff. I, I think I probably just made that part up. I study a lot for the SATs, so all the <laughs> word stuff. <laughs> Would anyone like to be the third questioner? How long did it take to write this? Almost four years. Yeah. But I noted that David Wallace wrote Infinite Jest in three and a half, so (laughs) I'm not doing that good. (laughs) I feel we haven't gotten over the anxious part yet. Anything else? Yes. (laughs) person yes Well there are two actually in the book, but the other person had a really boring name so she got a very secondary role Deborah Levin she's the head of NASA in the second half of the book um, a writer friend from California actually wrote asking if I would participate in the First Amendment Project's auction of character names. So people just bid, and they could choose whatever name they want. It didn't have to be their own name, but I believe that Montese Crandall's name is Monty's Crandall. And I know this because later on, someone contacted me on Facebook and said, I'm really good friends with Montese Crandall. And I said, well, you can tell him that I've made him the centerpiece of my book, at which point she said, It's a she. (laughs) So I said, well, then please tell her that I changed her to a guy. It's a huge honor. Yes. Yeah. What else? I'm just getting warmed up. Man. Talk about setting it in the future and what difficulties that posed. It was not totally fun. It was really fun. I mean, really, the criterion for inclusion in this book was that it had to be fun. That was sort of the whole reason to do it. And it's meant to sort of be an homage to the kinds of books that I like to read at 13, 14, 15, when I was making the transition from reading like Robert Heinlein to reading Beckett. And those books were like Catch-22, Sirens of Titan, uh, Richard Brodigan's novels, Crying of Lot 49, stuff like that. And all those books seemed to me to have this kind of playful quality to them. So I wanted to try to be playful in the same way. Really the futurist part of the thing, the speculative part of the thing is allegorical. It's always an allegorical superstructure, I think. That's why we like Star Wars and Star Trek and all that kind of stuff. To the extent that we do, it's talking about how we live now. So I think this is a book set in 2026. That's really about 2008, because that's sort of when I began it. And the, the futurism is just hyperbolic here and now. So instead of undocumented workers trying to enter the country, in my book there... Undocumented workers trying to leave the country. <laughs> yes? Do you, do you think by having that uh, structure, structure, is there always, um, like, do you think that that's necessarily like didactic in a way that, that there can be some kind of form that, that it imparts? Well, it might be. I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a tendency in science fiction, for lack of a better way to call it, to be, to sort of tilt in the direction of novel of ideas that naturalism avoids, you know? Uh, And I've never been, even in my more realistic work, one to avoid a little bit of didacticism. So it may be that this, way of approaching the work, this time allows me to do things I was already doing and to be unembarrassed about them in that way. But I think that's right. I mean, the science fiction books that I really liked when I was a kid like Dune or Philip K. Dick or Ballard or Samuel Delaney all have a little of that, now let me teach you something kind of aspect to them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else? You want to tell us about your playing a little bit with the DSM? Oh, Um, are you a therapist? No, I just... (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows what the DSM is, right? It's the book that therapists use to classify your illnesses for insurance purposes. I updated it. I think we're in version 4 now, is that correct? I don't know. I believe. Any therapists in the room? I think we're at DSM-4, so I moved us up to DSM-7, and there are a lot of new illnesses in DSM-7. I can't remember them all now, but that was really fun. I loved making up new illnesses, (laughs) yeah. Years ago, you were working on DSM-5, and I was told that it takes a decade to bring up dsm so it's for seven, I think, I know, I, I know it's ridiculous, but I'm allowed to be ridiculous because I'm the fiction writer. How do you feel about 1984 by Orwell? Still good? I'm not too worried. Yes? well right. and I was just reading your rules for writing today, and one of them was always erase the last line. The last line, yes. I wanted to ask you about that, and then also your character sort of erases the last line, the first line, the byline, the sideline. Was that sort of a play on your rules? The character sort of has now limited his two, two words before? You-, you know, I didn't think of it. I should say before, to others who, who have Less of an idea, the piece that you're alluding to—that I, I wrote this piece called "Rules for Revision," just because I think revisions really important for contemporary writing, and that it's being effaced a little bit with the hurtling forward of MS Word, etc. I still print out, correct by hand, re-enter the corrections, and I do multiple drafts of everything, and I think that that's time well spent. And I had a few other suggestions, among which was, cut the last sentence. And my f- my feeling is that I, for one, but possibly many other contemporary writers have a tendency to always hit the last note really hard as though to summarize. And for me, that results in excessively tidy endings. And if you cut that sentence and go back a bit, there's a kind of a disjunctiveness that involves an opening outward at the end instead of a shutting down. It's about possibility instead of foreclosing on possibility. So for me it's it's been incredibly useful. I still do it all the time. It makes paragraphs so much better. And ends of chapters and sometimes ends of books. Um, but I, I confess I hadn't thought that Montes was or was not following my rules because he also really likes adverbs which in my book are to be avoided at all costs. No adverbs. Anything else? I believe that's the end of the question and answer. <laughs> You've been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com today's music was provided by ashley and arlo you can check them out at myspace facebook or at the itunes music store thanks for stopping by and we hope to see you soon